Good morning, church. Oh, man, you guys can do better than that. Good morning. It's a little better, a little better. For those that don't know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here with Christ Covenant Fellowship. I want to thank you all for being here this morning. Our lead pastor, Pastor Tyler, is traveling this weekend with his wife, Sasha. So if you would, please be in prayer for them as they travel back, number one, today as they travel pray for traveling mercies, but also pray that this was a, a sweet time for them, a time that they could rest and just enjoy one another. I know that they do quite a bit here, and they're often run ragged, so just pray that they were able to rest and uh, be re rejuvenated after this weekend. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to continue in our series in the book of John that we started several weeks ago. And this morning we will be reading John chapter 1 verses 19 through 28. I'll give you a second to get there. John 1, 19 through 28. So I want to read these verses and then pray and ask God to bless our time and move in this place this morning. So let us read John 1, starting at verse 19. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It reads, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to gather together again this morning. Father, I have an incredible task before me. I could never speak to the glory that you deserve. But Father, I ask that by your spirit being at work in me and in this place this morning, Lord, you would help me to speak in a way that brings glory to your name. Father, help us to see the truths of these verses, what you uh, want to communicate to us this morning. Father, I pray that we would block out all distractions, Lord, that you would remove any obstacle, and you would help us to clearly see the purpose of these verses this morning. God, I pray that as I speak, it would be all about you, that you would increase, that I would decrease. I pray that the people sitting here this morning wouldn't remember me, but they would remember you. They would remember the purpose, the value, the truth found in these texts this morning. God, I pray that we're challenged this morning, yet encouraged. And above all, Christ is exalted. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So the old saying goes... You only get one chance to make a first impression. And what that statement tells me is that introductions matter. You see, when you first meet someone, the way that you're introduced to them carries great weight. It's going to leave some sort of impression, whether it's a positive one or a negative one. I think we see this truth applied in the greatest fashion in the world of business, right? Think about the last time you interviewed for a job, or better yet, if you're in this room this morning, maybe you're a business owner, or you're a manager, or, or a supervisor. I want you to think about the last interview that you conducted. As an employer, you're often looking for identifiers right off the bat, right? The way that the candidate greets you, their body language, their facial expression, right? Their verbal responses. You're looking for all of these cues, right? You can tell a lot about a person within the first few minutes of encountering them. 
Again, this tells me that introductions are extremely significant. You see, as we've been working through the first chapter of the gospel according to John, the apostle has given us the most magnificent introduction to Jesus. He refers to Christ as the logos or the word, the one who was in the beginning with God, the one who was God. And in verse 14, we learn that this word became flesh and dwelt among men. We find that this word is the radiant glory of God, full of grace and truth. What an incredible, what a glorious way to present Christ Jesus, the Savior, the perfect Son of God. And although this is a glorious and breathtaking introduction to Jesus, as we look at the text before us this morning, we find yet another incredible introduction, albeit for different reasons. And that's the introduction of John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist was a fascinating individual. There have been a lot of great men and women, for that matter, throughout the history of the world. But Jesus says in Matthew 11, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You see, the fact that Jesus considers John to be this wonderful, exquisite, significant individual, that makes the way that John introduces himself here to this group of Jews that much more astounding. You see, as we have found over the last couple of weeks, John the Baptist had been sent for a purpose. He had a specific mission. Now, John isn't the centerpiece or the focal point of this gospel account. We know that that distinction belongs to Jesus Christ. But John had a divine calling. John had a purpose to testify about the one who was before him, the one who is infinitely greater, the one that takes away the sins of the world, and that is the Messiah, the, the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, John understood that his role was simply that of a forerunner. John was a messenger. He was sent to pave the way for the coming of the king. See, as we look at verses 19 through 28 this morning, I think there are three things that we can take away from these verses this morning. There are three headings that I want to use. So if you're taking notes, these are the three headings that we'll be using this morning. Number one is the mission of John the Baptist. The mission of John the Baptist. Number two is the message of John the Baptist. The message of John the Baptist. And number three is the mindset of John the Baptist. The mindset of John the Baptist. Listen, my aim this morning is simple. I want to reveal the role of John the Baptist as a witness, as a servant to Christ Jesus. But I also want to underscore his message about Christ. And I ultimately want to illuminate the humility that he displays as a messenger of Christ Jesus. My hope is that as we look at the testimony and the humble witness of John the Baptist, we would be compelled to use our voices, our platforms, our influence to point others to the glorious, all-sufficient Savior that is Christ Jesus. So let's begin. Number one, we'll look at the mission of John the Baptist. See, verse 19 here begins with, and this is the testimony of John. You see, like a lawyer building his case, the apostle John calls forth this witness. Here he presents John the Baptist as a witness sharing testimony to the truth about Jesus Christ. And so the apostle chooses to re record this encounter between John the Baptist and a group of Jews who have come to question him. And in verse 19, it tells us that these men uh, were sent by the Jews. Now, that phrase, the Jews, is one that you'll see over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. And this is referred to the religious leader, the, those who were in opposition to Jesus Christ. Uh, for most commentators believe that this group of men was representing the Sanhedrin. If you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, it's just a, a group of Jewish leaders, like a Jewish council that represented the nation, right? They were those who were in leadership, the Sanhedrin. 
In fact, if we look at verse 24, we find that this group had been sent by the Pharisees. Now, we all know who the Pharisees are. We know that the Pharisees stood in great opposition to Jesus. They were against anyone who didn't submit to their teaching, their tradition. We are all very familiar, or at least we should be, with the Pharisees. So then the question becomes, okay, why have these dudes come to question John the Baptist? Why are they seeking him out? Well, Israel was in the midst of what is known as an intertestamental period. And this is the period between the Old Testament and the recording of the New Testament. And it was about a 400-year span, a period of silence, where the nation of Israel heard nothing from God. There's no prophets. There's no prophecies. Just silence. No word from the Lord. So then you enter onto the scene, John the Baptist. Here's this man who is baptizing people, who's preaching this message of repentance, who's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. You see, and not only is he preaching this message, but now he's amassed this massive following. He's got people flocking to him. He started to gain traction and popularity. And there are those amongst the nation of Israel who are starting to wonder whether he might actually be the promised Messiah, or maybe he's some other form of eschatological figure. Maybe he's some other end times figure. Maybe this guy is coming, and that means the Messiah is actually coming. I mean, these possibilities were very unsettling for the Jewish authorities for both political and religious reasons. So naturally, these leaders felt it necessary. Let's, let's go investigate this brother. Let's go ask him who he is. So the text tells us that they come to John and they say, who are you? And this is a really probing question. This is a question that could have demanded any number of responses. It's really a softball question. It's a question that John could easily answer. He could have talked about a lot of things right here. He could have said, talked about uh, the fact that he's baptizing a lot of people. He could have talked about all of the disciples that he's making. He could have said, I'm the son of Zechariah, a priest. Or in fact, he could have told them that his mother was from the, line, the lineage of Aaron. So in fact, John the Baptist comes from a, a priestly bloodline. He could have told them all about himself. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Oh, and by the way, he could have said, guess what? The Messiah, he's my cousin. Yeah, the Messiah that we've all waited on, yeah, that's my cousin. We're like this. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, look at me and look how important I am. John doesn't do any of that. Verse 20 says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What an introduction. What a way to introduce yourself to people and tell them who you are. I am not the Christ. This is an incredible introduction, especially when you put it next to the way that the Apostle John introduces Jesus. And he pre uh, presents Jesus as this magnificent Savior. He introduces him as the Word, Christ Jesus, the co-eternal, co-equal to the Father, the one that is light and life, full of grace and truth. It's as if John the Baptist is saying, I'm not that. I am not that. I am not the Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can certainly learn a lot from John the Baptist right here. We often love to position ourselves in a way that we receive glory and praise. We love to posture about ourselves, don't we? As human beings, we love applause. We love recognition. I mean, if this were me, I would have been tempted to say all of those things. I would have been tempted to expand my platform, to take this as a great opportunity for some really good PR, to build myself up, right? For me to be able to say, look at what I'm doing. But John doesn't do that. And again, John had a massive following. Matthew chapter 3 tells us this, that Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. John had people flocking to him from everywhere. He's an extremely popular individual. Yet when faced with the question, who are you? He remembers his mission. 
He remembers his role as a servant, as a messenger. He's not there to toot his own horn or to grow his platform. He says, I'm not the Christ. Even his denial is a testimony to Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is a much-needed reminder for each of us as followers of Christ. Listen, I take this part personally, too. Even for me as a pastor, I'm not here to build myself up. I'm not here to build my own brand or to establish my own kingdom. I'm not called to pat myself on the back. I'm here for the purpose of glorifying Christ and making him known. That's why I'm here. That's why we're here as a body of believers, as the church. We are here to make Jesus's name great, not our own. Amen belongs right there. You see, John confesses here, and in fact, he does it so forcefully. Verse 20 says he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. This is an emphatic denial or confession. And again, even this denial serves as a witness to the true Messiah. This too directs our attention towards Christ. See, his denying being Christ is a testimony to the glory of Jesus. John says, despite my following, despite all the people I'm baptizing, despite all the disciples that I've made, I am not the Christ. And what a glorious confession this is. What's your favorite confession? Maybe it's the 1689. Maybe it's the New Hampshire, the Westminster, whatever it might be. This is a confession that we can easily memorize. This is one that's more important than any of them. I am not the Christ. There's so much freedom in being able to confess that. I think a lot of times, especially, again, speaking for myself, right, as pastors, as we shepherd this flock, We tend to think we have to hold everything together, that we have to be everywhere and do everything, not just pastors, but for us as Christians, right? We think we have to hold the universe together, forgetting that God created all things without us. He doesn't need us to help him sustain the universe. He's totally capable. Sometimes we simply need to remember that we're not the Savior. I am not the Messiah See, realizing that the burden to save people doesn't rest on my shoulders brings an incredible feeling of freedom. Listen, to the parents in this room, it's not your job to save your kids. Now, yes, you should raise them in the instruction of the Lord. You should disciple them. You should discipline them. Yes and amen, but you cannot save your children. I'm preaching this to myself. Husbands and wives, it's not your job to save your spouse. Yes, your marriage should be a living, breathing demonstration of the gospel message. Yes, you should point your spouse consistently to Jesus every day, but you cannot save your spouse. It's not your job to save them. Me as a pastor, I can't save any of you. It doesn't matter how hard I preach how much I point you to the scriptures and the reality of Christ Jesus as I should, I have no power to save you. There are many of us sitting in this room today that simply need that reminder. I am not the Christ. People need a savior, but you're not it, and neither am I. Like John the Baptist, our role is to be a servant, a witness, a messenger directing others to the only one who can save, Christ Jesus, the Messiah. That is our mission, to point others to him. So John makes it clear here, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. If that's what you came looking for, I'm, I'm not him. You're going to be greatly disappointed. So then this group of men says, okay. Well, who are you? Maybe you're some other type of significant figure. This group of men, they continue to press in on John here, and they say, what then? Are you Elijah? Maybe this is Elijah. And this would have been based on the prophecy from Malachi chapter 4, right? Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the prophet or excuse me, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord 
come. So the nation of Israel was under the belief that, okay, Elijah must return before the Messiah, the Savior, can come. So they were fully expecting the physical incarnation of Elijah. If you remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up to heaven, right, in the great whirlwind. He didn't die. So they're expecting Elijah to come back before the Messiah steps on to the scene. So they're thinking, okay, maybe this is Elijah. We haven't heard anything from God in 400 years. It's been silence. Maybe this is Elijah come. So we need to take note of this if this is indeed him. I mean, after all, even John the Baptist had some similarities to Elijah, right? John was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Well, 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 1 describes Elijah as a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. John the Baptist's message was even similar to what Elijah would have been preaching about repentance and about the judgment of God. So there are some similarities there. Yet when they ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? John says, I am not. Now, just for clarification, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, well, what is this prophecy about Elijah? Is the Bible inaccurate? Is there some inconsistency there? Well, Jesus helps to clear up any confusion or contradictions about this prophecy concerning Elijah. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it quickly. Matthew chapter 17 verses 10 through 13. And this is what it says. And the disciples asked him, they're talking to Jesus, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered them, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Listen, for more on that, more clarification, you can write these two verses down. Go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and then Luke chapter 1, verse 17. That'll explain that a little further. But so what Jesus is saying is while they're expecting this physical return of Elijah from heaven, Jesus tells them that John the Baptist was this Elijah-like figure that had come to fulfill that prophecy. So John the Baptist had come preparing the way for the Messiah. He was not the physical incarnation of Elijah that they were expecting. That is not how the prophecy was to be fulfilled. John the Baptist fulfills it as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me there? Okay, very good. So we know that John isn't the Christ. We know that he's not Elijah. Okay, so then who are you? These men ask yet another question. The next inquiry of this group of men, they say, are you the prophet? Now what you'll notice here is that the word prophet is capitalized. And this would have been a reference to the promise of the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, 18, again, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for us. And it says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, the identity of who this prophet was was much debated amongst the nation of Israel, right? Some believe the prophet would be a forerunner to the Messiah, like uh, Elijah or one of the other Old Testament prophets resurrected, when others believe that this prophet was referring to the Messiah himself. Nevertheless, John denies and says, I am not the prophet. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Okay, so now that that's out the way, who is John? Who is this guy? Well, we certainly know who he is not, not the Christ, not the Elijah, not the prophet. He's introduced himself as a man of no importance, of no significance. Because again, John understood his mission, his role as a forerunner to bear witness, to give testimony of the coming Savior. You see, John was sent to share, to preach a particular message. And what is that message? Well, that brings us to heading number two. 
the message of John the Baptist. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. And it reads, So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. So after this string of consecutive denials, this group of priests and Levites, they have a clear understanding of who John is not, but they can't go back with that. It's like, we can't go back to this council and tell them who you aren't. It's like, look, buddy, you got to tell us something. We, got, we can't go back empty-handed. We have to be able to tell them something. So who are you? And John responds, responds by giving them further insight into his identity. He gives them a little bit of light. He sheds a little light on the subject. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John says, you want to know who I am? I'm a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm just a mouthpiece, one sent to bear witness about one who is infinitely greater than myself. You want to tell them something? Go tell them that. Tell them that. See, John here calls himself a voice. Now, I want you to contrast that against what the apostle John writes about Jesus. He calls Jesus the word. John calls himself the voice. So John is the messenger. Jesus is the substance of that message. John is just simply the medium through which the truth about Christ Jesus is being communicated. The voice versus the word. And so what John does here is he actually quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. You see, in the original context, the prophet Isaiah is making a metaphorical call to clear the roads, to straighten the way for the return of God's covenant people coming back from exile. But here, John the Baptist applies Isaiah 40, verse 3, to himself. John is just that voice in the wilderness, and he's saying, prepare the way. Now, before we go any further, I think it's, understand, or it's important for us to understand the word wilderness here. This is more of a theological term than it is a geographical one. This does not mean that John is lost in the middle of nowhere. So when it says a voice in the wilderness, this doesn't mean he's out in the woods somewhere lost and he can't find his way. He's not in the middle of nowhere. This means he is a prophetic voice crying out during desolate times. You see, this text is applied here to describe the spiritual condition of Israel, their desolate and empty hearts. This reminds us of the, how barren and dismal Israel had become, spiritually speaking. See, the verse that John quotes here from Isaiah is significant. But there's a greater imagery here than just paving the way of some roads. Something greater happening here than just clearing the way physically, beyond a means of transportation. This is beyond a physical roadway. When John says, make straight the way of the Lord, he is issuing a challenge to his hearers, not to consider their physical posture, but the posture of their hearts. He is telling them to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, to remove all barriers, to level out all impediments in preparation for the one who is to come. See, this is John's message As a faithful witness to Christ, his job was to prepare men for the coming of the Messiah. He's saying the Messiah is coming. Make sure you are ready. Make sure you are prepared. In fact, the Messiah isn't just coming. He is here, John says. He is here amongst you now. So repent, turn from your sins, and believe in the one that has the power to save. See, John's duty was to make plain to men what they must do to be prepared for the coming of the king. We know the message or the content of John's message. We know what he was preaching. Verses like Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or verses like Luke 
3, verses 16 and 17. As John is addressing this crowd of people that have come to him, again, this massive following that he's amassed, and he says this to the crowd as it pertains to Jesus. He's speaking about Jesus here. He says, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John is clearly preaching a message of the coming judgment, warning men to repent and to be prepared. This is the message of John the Baptist to make straight the way of the Lord. That's important. That's important. John wasn't preaching some soft message. He wasn't preaching a message to make people comfortable or to make friends or so that he would be revered. He was telling them the truth of what was awaiting them. The Messiah is coming, and you must be prepared for that. That was John's message. I think it's interesting to note here that Isaiah verse 40, or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, if you read it in the Old Testament, the word Lord there is in all capitals. And sometimes you'll see that in the Old Testament. And that's the Hebrew word for Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. I think it's interesting to note, John quotes this about Jesus. John quotes that about Jesus Christ, because that's John's testimony. That's his message, that Christ is Lord, that he's the Savior, that he is coming. Listen, as disciples of Jesus Christ, this must be our message as well. That we consistently proclaim that Christ is coming. That we prepare the individuals that God's placed in our lives. Whether it's our children, our family members, our co-workers, whoever it might be in our circle, our spheres of influence, that we are also preparing them, as John the Baptist was, for the coming of the Messiah. To repent and believe the gospel to turn from your sins, to lay down your rebellion for the one who is infinitely greater and all his glory is coming. And men must have their hearts prepared. Sadly, we've seen many abandon this message. Apparently preaching a message of the coming judgment and repentance isn't going to gain you a lot of fans. It's not going to make you very popular. I think this is where we often fail in our evangelism. And we're so concerned with being liked. We want to be comfortable. We, so much so that we often compromise the gospel message. We're soft and reserved in our proclamation. We just act like everything's okay and people are fine. I mean, we're all good people, right? And it's just going to work out in the end, right? Love wins, right? I mean, church, where's our sense of urgency? Where's our feelings of desperation? as we mourn over those around us who we know are destined for death and destruction. This isn't a time to capitulate, to turn, or to soften our message. This is a time to boldly preach to prepare the hearts of men. Where are the earnest and desperate pleas for men to turn around, to lay aside their sin, and to prepare their hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ? Friends, we got to understand the truth of the matter. And the truth is that in our natural state, human beings are doomed. The Bible clearly pronounces judgment on every human being for their sin. Right? Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are sick and wicked. See, the world needs to understand that reality. We don't need more pastors preaching messages of cultural relevance. We don't need more sermons on worldly conformity or self-help, or better yourself, feel-good messages. We don't need any more of that. We need people to stand up and preach the truth of the gospel, paving the way for the coming of the King, preparing people for the return of Christ. We must challenge people that are comfortable and complacent. People who are comfortable with their sin, we must challenge them to repent and believe the gospel. Friends, this goes beyond the pulpit. This isn't just my job as a pastor. As Christians, this is our call to spread throughout all the nations, throughout all of creation, this message 
of the coming Savior. Right? He's come, but he's coming again. You know, Jesus shares a parable in Matthew chapter 25. And if you want, you can flip over there quickly. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus shares this parable of the ten virgins. I just want to read this quickly. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This is what it says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us, for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And this parable is one about preparation, about being ready for the return of Christ. So I ask you, as you sit here this morning, are you ready? Are our hearts prepared? Christ Jesus is coming again with all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. See, lest a man be born again clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, he is not prepared for the coming of the king. He cannot stand in the face of the judgment that awaits every man. You see, for us to be faithful witnesses, we must be committed to this message, the message that God has entrusted to each of us. You see, just as John was the forerunner to the Christ in his first coming by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must boldly profess, make way, make straight the way of the Lord. That is our message to the world. Make straight the way of the Lord. Friends, there is no message greater, more urgent, more needed than this. It's what we must do in order to faithfully and obediently proclaim the gospel. We must also have an appropriate view of ourselves. We must have a particular mentality as servants, as messengers. And this brings me to my final point, point Number three, and this is the mindset of John the Baptist. Let's look at verses 24 through 27. This is a parenthetical statement. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So here we have this group of men still sent by the Pharisees, and they're not quite finished with John just yet. They continue pressing in on him even further. Verse 25 says they've now begun to question him about baptism. And they say, if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing? What gives you the authority to do this, to make disciples, to baptize people? Where does your authority come from? Now, a little bit of background, a little bit of context here about baptism in that day and time. See, baptism was a pretty common practice in the ancient world. But for the Jews, they practiced a proselyte baptism. In other words, if someone converted to Judaism, then they would be baptized. They would baptize that person. But here's the issue with John the Baptist. He's baptizing Jews. He is baptizing Jewish people. You have to understand why this doesn't sit well with this delegation. 
You see, they want to know, well, how do you have this authority? Why are you baptizing Jews? We're already God's covenant people. We don't need this practice of baptism, especially if you're not a, a significant figure. You have no authority to do this, John. What justifies your baptism? See, this is why these Jewish leaders were so confused and they're perplexed when John is saying, make straight the way of the Lord and baptizing. See, they questioned his baptism of the Jewish people. They already thought that they were prepared. They assumed that they were in good standing because of their heritage, because of their tradition. They assumed they were right with God and they assumed on their entrance into the kingdom. I mean, after all, they're God's chosen people, right? Why do we need to be baptized? Why do we need to repent of sin? We're good already. John, what are you doing out here? Listen, here's the reality. There are a lot of people even today assuming this false sense of security. There are people who think they are in good standing with the Lord. People who are assuming on a profession of faith they made years ago. People who are banking on their church attendance and their good works. They think they're in right standing with God because of something they did 20 years ago. Listen, none of that will hold up when you stand before God. It is only Christ Jesus that saves. You see, there were those among the Pharisees set that considered themselves right simply because they were descendants of Abraham. But John the Baptist comes preaching this message, insisting on repentance on believing, on having faith in the one who is to come. He says, man, that has nothing to do with your ancestry or your tradition. It's only faith in Christ. He's the only way a man can be right before God. So John responds here to their question about his baptizing practices, but he doesn't take the opportunity to defend his ministry. Instead, he acknowledges the limitations of it. John says, I only baptized with water in verse 26. Now, we'll talk about this more next week. We'll get into this a little bit more next week as we continue working through chapter 1. But there's an obvious contrast between baptism with water and baptism by the Holy Spirit. John is saying, my baptism is merely a sign. There's no power in it. See, we have to have the right understanding of baptism as well. Baptism is not salvific. It doesn't save anybody. It doesn't wash away your sins. It is simply an act of obedience. It is a public profession of faith. See, we just took communion. It's similar, right? It's a sacrament. It's an ordinance that's given to the church that has a significant meaning. However, being baptized doesn't save anybody. It is another visual demonstration of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for us, taking to the cross, laying down his life, being buried in the tomb, and on the third day rose again, conquering sin and death. See, baptism is simply a picture of Christ's atoning worth. It is another way that we can point others to the glory of Jesus. Ultimately, that's what John the Baptist does right here. He again directs the attention away from himself and onto Christ. He says, man, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. That's important, too. See, they thought they knew God. John says, you don't even know him. There's one amongst you you do not know, even one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. See, here John shifts the discussion to the one that he's been bearing witness about all this time. He says, man, enough about me. You guys have asked me a million questions about me. Enough about me. It's not about me. You want to know why I've come preaching? You want to know why I've come baptizing with water? Because there's one among you who is so incredibly glorious in all of his splendor and majesty. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And you may say that's a really interesting illustration that John the Baptist chooses to use here. You see, in that day and time, according to the custom and the culture, students were to honor their teachers in every way. They were to serve them just as a slave would, with the exception of one task. A teacher was not allowed to ask his students to tie or untie his sandal. That was a duty reserved for the lowliest 
slave. And John says, man, I'm not even worthy to do that. Jesus is so incredibly glorious, I'm not even worthy to serve him as the lowest slave. See, this is where we truly see the mindset of a faithful witness. That mindset is one of humility. John just sees Jesus as greater, so much greater. See, John's consistently been demonstrating this posture of humility, pointing back to Christ. He says, man, he who comes after me. Now, a little bit of clarification here. This is referring to time, not status or position. See, John the Baptist was born before Jesus. He began his earthly ministry before Jesus. So when he says he comes after me, he's talking about time, not Jesus's status or position. It's not a comparison there. But John says he comes after me, but he's greater than I am. And this is a wonderful display of the humility of John the Baptist. Church, if we desire to faithfully serve and testify about Christ, this must be our posture as well. We must see Christ as greater than ourselves. Listen, as followers of Christ, there's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance or love of self. Again, I'm preaching to me here. If no one else, it can't be about me. It's not about me. I can't stand here on Sunday mornings and elevate Brandon or CCF. We're here to exalt and elevate Christ. I have to see him accordingly, and he's just greater. It's just what it is. He's greater. He's better. He's worthy. This is something that we as human beings must constantly battle because it's in our nature. We love, again, to be applauded, to be celebrated. We love to be the main attraction. Brothers and sisters, you cannot simultaneously follow Jesus Christ and desire your own glory. In fact, those two ideas are at odds with one another. Jesus says in Matthew 23, as he's talking to his disciples, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus is pointing to the priority of a humble mindset. This is what it requires to follow Jesus, to uh, minister to those around us faithfully about Jesus. We must be humble in our proclamation. Luke 9, 23, Jesus also says this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very self-glorifying, does it? Sounds like dying to self. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember, following Christ is not about me. It's not about us. John the Baptist understood that. He said, I'm just a voice. Bearing witness, sent to elevate Christ Jesus while lowering myself. Listen, as we continue to work through the Gospel of John, John the Baptist's testimony doesn't last very long. He quickly fades from the scene. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. And then John's finished. What incredible humility he exercises. We could learn a lot from John here. Following Jesus is going to demand great humility on our parts as well. As we prepare to close our time here this morning, John the Baptist served as a humble witness to the Messiah But even as great as he was, nobody has shown greater or more astounding humility than Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Listen, if anyone had the right to elevate himself, to demand praise and tribute, it's Jesus Christ. 
It's Jesus Christ. But even as the Son of God and the Savior of the world, he didn't come seeking his own glory. He came in obedience to the Father that his name would be made great. You see, even the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a great demonstration of his humility. That Christ Jesus would lay aside his heavenly privileges and take on the very nature of his own creation. What a demonstration of the humility of our Savior, Christ Jesus he would lay down his life for my freedom in spite of my rebellion is astonishing to me. You see, as we close here today, I'm sure that some of you sitting in here may be saying to yourself, man, I don't have the courage and boldness that John the Baptist had. I don't have a ministry like his. I don't have a following like he had. I can't be an effective witness like John was can't do what John the Baptist did. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, but also want to challenge you here to be a witness for Christ Jesus right where the Lord has you, right where you are. And a great place to start is in your home with your family. And maybe you sit here and you say, well, I don't have any kids and I don't have a spouse. Well, you certainly have family members, but okay, maybe you don't. You have neighbors, those in your community. What about your coworkers? What about the people you go to work with on the nine to five every single day? God's given you an avenue to be a faithful witness for Christ. He's given you opportunities for you to glorify the name of Jesus, to tell others about his wonderful deeds. Listen, we all have a testimony. What we're reading here is the testimony of John the Baptist. But if you're in here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you too have a testimony. Because you weren't born a believer. So God had to do something to get you to the place where you're now alive to the realities of Christ. So you have a testimony as well. Yours may not be like mine. It may not be like Pastor Tyler's. It may not be like anybody else's in this church. But you have a testimony See, I think where we go wrong is we often make the testimony about us. Sometimes you hear people share and they don't even mention God. It's about self-help, about how I bettered my life. Man, you have a story to share about how God has worked in an incredible way in your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Take the opportunities God's given you to be a humble and faithful witness. Use your platform, your influence the relationships God's given you, to share about the one who is greater, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.